notice that the second most watched message from this church was on biblical illiteracy. What do you think that says? It says people know that there is a tremendous plague of biblical illiteracy. And you know what? There's an old saying that says if there's a, if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pews. Get it? That means if, if the word's not coming out of the pulpit, how can, you, how can you get it into the people? So we're huge on the word of God here and on the moving of the Holy Spirit and worship, but we're, the word is central because faith comes by hearing the word. Okay, so we're going to look tonight at uh, the, the Old Testament, some of the New Testament, and just the, the uniformity and the unity of the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. We're going to learn tonight. This is sort of like a, a little bit like a seminary class, but it's not going to be dry, dull, and boring, but we're going to look at it and it's going gonna, it's gonna to bless us. Amen? So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you will teach us your word. Lord, drive us into your word. Call us into your word. We do not want to be biblically illiterate, nor do we want to be ignorant of the moving of your spirit. We want that balance. We want both. And we ask you, Lord, to speak to us tonight. Will you breathe a prayer, church, and just say, Lord, I receive your word. Give me an understanding heart. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to your neighbor and tell him, perk up and listen, you're going to need this before you get home. All right. Now, we're connecting the dots, and, and the whole reason we called it that is because there is a unity. Now, we saw last time that there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, approximately 40 different authors. Think about that. Over a 1,500-year time span. Now, logically walk through that. If I was going to put together a book that I was going to call a holy book, and I was going to call it the very Word of God, and that wasn't true, but I was going to try to push it off on people that way, I would gather around me the ones who were going to write it, and we would all get on the same page. And then we would go start writing. We would compare notes. We would make sure we weren't contradicting each other because, after all, this is going to be pushed off as the Word of God to generations to come. And that's the only way you're going to get around it. That's the only way you're going to be sure that it makes sense, that it's unified, that it carries the same themes and the same ideas, and that it doesn't contradict unless it's supernaturally given. If it's supernaturally given, you don't have to gather around yourself the people that are going to be writing it and make sure they're all on the same page. You couldn't have done it with the Bible because 40 different authors over 1,500 years, but they don't contradict. They do not contradict. It's a unified book. It talks about salvation, heaven, hell, the fall of man, the Redeemer. We saw last time that the Bible, if you, if you just put it in a blender and hit liquefy and it poured it out, it would be, all be about Jesus. From stem to stern, Revelation, or Genesis to Revelation, it's really all about Jesus. The Old Testament looks forward to the cross. The New Testament looks back on the cross. The Old Testament anticipated the Messiah. The Gospels introduced the Messiah. The letters explain the Messiah, and Revelations tells us Messiah is coming back again. And it's all unified. You can't do that unless it's supernatural. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. Now, the word inspiration is theonoustos, theo, God, or theos, God, theos, Neustos breathed out. It's telling us all Scripture, all of it, even the boring genealogies, even all the Levitical diet and all these different things, all of it was breathed out of God. And no prophecy is written by the will of man. We saw that last time. 
Not one word was written by a man deciding, well, I'm going to write, a, I'm going to write part of the Bible. I'm just going to write part of the Bible. And sat down and wrote it by his own will. It says, but holy men of God, holy men of old, were born along, carried along by the Holy Spirit as they penned those words. That's the same idea of, of a sailboat being blown across the waters by a breeze. They didn't go into an automatic writing trance and just something grabbed their arm and they started writing with glazed eyes and a weird expression. They were born along, carried along, and wrote as the Holy Spirit moved them to write. The Bible is not a normal book. Got a lot of books. I'm a book lover. But I'm going to tell you, the Bible is not normal. As a matter of fact, the Bible is the only book on earth that's not from earth. You get it? It's the only book on earth that did not originate on earth. It came from heaven. It originated with God. Now you say, you really believe that, Pastor? Well, of course I believe that. Yeah, it's the same God who said, let there be light. Can't write a Bible? Can't move on men? Absolutely. So we're looking at how the Old Testament and the New Testament agree. And I want you to understand the, the theme and the overarching uh, uh, subject matter and themes and continuity and unity of the Old Testament so that you can better understand the New. Because I'm going to tell you, you never really fully understand the New Testament until you understand the Old we said last time, just because it's called old doesn't mean it's antiquated, dated, irrelevant, or meaningless. It just means it's older than the new. It was first. You could call it the first covenant and the second covenant. Okay? So if you got your Bible in your hand, hold it up. Let me grab one right here. If you got your Bible in your hand, I want you to hold it up, and I want you to say something with me in all sincerity. This is a supernatural book. God gave us this book. It's not a book about God only. It's a book written by the finger of God through men. It doesn't just have a few words from men in it, but it's the words of God. Okay? So it's a supernatural book. So every time I open it, I did this morning, I, every morning I go out there Kathy will testify, and I open up that Bible, and I just read it. And I say, I've been doing this. Listen, I've been preaching for 42 years. Can you believe that? Before some of you were a sparkle in your mama's eye, I was preaching. But guess what? I open up that Bible, and I've been studying the Bible all those years, and, and I still open it up and still have things jump out at me that I've never seen. This morning I had something jump out at me. I wish I could preach right now, but I can't. And I told Kathy, I said, man, I see something here. What? And so I started preaching to Kathy. She hears more of my preaching than any human on earth. She sits through three services, four services every week. And uh, so God's going to give her an extra crown for that in heaven. Amen? Now, now, let's connect the dots. The books of the Bible. Now, let's just, let's just quote this together. This is our key verse for tonight. This is David. He says, ready? Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Now the King James puts it this way. Open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. There you go. How many times have I prayed that? Hundreds of times. That's one of my prayer verses. Open my eyes. So that's the way we need to open the Bible every time. Now, in our last lesson or last time we were together, we learned that the Bible is the written word of God, as I've just gone over again. We learned it's divided into two major sections called the Old and the New Testament or the Old and New Covenants, because that's what they were, covenants. We learned the four divisions of the Old Testament books. Let's read them together, can we? Law, history, poetry, prophecy. And then we jumped into the New Testament, and we looked at how it's broken down also into four sections. Let's read them together. Gospels, history, letters, prophets. Now look how familiar or how similar they are. 
old and new compared. In the Old Testament, it's law. In the New Testament, it's gospels. In the Old Testament's history, in the New Testament's history, book of Acts. In the Old Testament, it's poetry, Song of Solomon, whatnot. But in the New Testament, it's letters or epistles written by the apostles. And then in the Old Testament, it ends with prophecy, Malachi. And in the New Testament, it ends with prophecy, the book of Revelation. So they're very similar. Four sections each. Okay? And this time we're going to look at a summary of every one of the 66 books of the Bible which make up the major divisions of the Old and New Testaments. Now, I can't tarry long, obviously, on any of them because there's 66. But I'm going to, in two or three or four sentences with most of them, I'm going to just encapsulate or summarize what that book is about. And I hope you get these notes because a lot of work went into this. And I don't want you to forget it. We have a little saying, paper never forgets. Now, the older you get, the more you will forget. But paper never forgets. Okay? All of you people that are moving on in life, say amen to that. Amen. How many of you are forgetting more things as time goes on? I'm just curious. Uh-oh. We need to have an anointing session here. All right. Now, we're going to provide an introduction to the content of both Testaments. So here goes with the Old Testament books. First, the books of law, the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, okay? Uh-oh. Well, I just jumped ahead. Okay, Genesis. Genesis records the beginning of the universe. Of course, Genesis is book of beginnings. If you want to know the beginning of everything, it was not some single-celled amoeba crawling out of a primordial sea that finally sprouted legs. As a matter of fact, I had an, not an argument, a really hearty debate today with several evolutionists who got mad at me. I get people mad at me a lot. All I did was tweet. Tweeting is getting me in trouble. I, I just tweeted something for believers who follow me. And all I said was, don't let evolution make a monkey out of you. That's all I said. That's all I said. And all of a sudden, I started hearing boop, 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 as all these tweets came down. Now, I hashtagged evolution. That was, my, that was my mistake because then it went out into where everyone could see it. And I had all these evolutionists coming at me. I mean, all the way here. I almost have a headache from talking to them all the way here. Kathy says, why do you even answer them? Because it sharpens me. Now here, we either came, from, I mean, it had to come from something. Everything did. Genesis says God did it. Evolutionists say chance and time did it. Really? So I asked this one evolutionist, I said, which came first, the blood vessels that the blood goes through or the heart that pumps the blood through the blood vessels? And if the heart was first, what did it say to uncaring, cold, frozen evolution? I need blood vessels to pump blood through? What came first, the blood vessels? And then did they say, well, we're useless without a heart? Stop and think for a minute. How did the blood vessels wait around long enough and survive long enough for a heart to pump the blood, which it also had to come up with, to move through veins. I mean, folks, look at the body. We could just start with the eyeball. We were not fearfully and wonderfully evolved. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, and so I, I told them, I said, I could throw religion right out the window and, and approach it from pure logic. Pure logic. Common sense will not support it, in my opinion. Now, that's free. And I didn't mean to go off into all that, but looking at Genesis, it reminded me of what all I went through today at the hands of evolutionists. <laughs> now, but Genesis is the book of beginnings, and it does not contradict, contrary to what some say. Records the beginning of the universe, of man, the Sabbath, marriage between a man and a woman, sin, sacrifice, 
nations and government and key men of God like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, I don't have it in these notes here, but there's four major epical events in Genesis, okay? Epical events, I mean, defining moments in time, epics, the creation of everything, the fall of man, which sent sin into the blood veins of every human being and cursed the planet, the flood, where God judged man and only a family, one family survived and two of every species, and the Tower of Babel. So the four major epical events of Genesis are the creation, the fall, the flood, the tower. And that happened over a long period of time. Okay? That's Genesis, beginnings. Then Exodus. That details how Israel became a nation with Moses as their leader. Israel is delivered from bondage in Egypt in the book of Exodus and travels to Mount Sinai where the law of God is given. So Exodus, of course, out of Egypt into the wilderness, ultimately into the promised land with the second generation. Uh, Leviticus, this book was a manual of worship for Israel. God taught his people to be worshipers, okay? It provides instruction to the religious leaders and explains how a sinful people can approach a righteous God. So here's God already. It's like I, I shared last weekend that from Genesis to Revelation, we see God endeavoring to enter into relationship with man again that was cut off when man sinned. When Adam sinned, here's what happened. His spirit died. His body kept functioning, but his spirit died. His fellowship with God was broken. From that moment forward, all the Bible is about is God seeking to bring man back into fellowship and back into life with him. And, of course, it was climaxed in the person of Jesus Christ. It was predicted in Genesis chapter 12 when God told Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and you are the beginning of my plan, Abraham. So in Leviticus, God is saying, all right, here's how you approach me in worship. It relates to the coming of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then we come to numbers. People say, why are you always worried about numbers? God doesn't care about numbers. And I say, ah, but there's a book called Numbers. Yes, he does. Numbers records Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, which was a result of disobedience to God. And Numbers is kind of depressing because you want to say, these people just don't get it. How can they keep doing this? But they do. The title of the book is From Two Numberings, uh, uh, Population Censuses That Were Taken During the Long Journey. Then we come to Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch, the last of the five writings of Moses. And that records the final days of Moses' life and reviews the laws given in Exodus and Leviticus. It's sort of like a, it's, it's like a let's, let's, let's review before the test. Okay, so God goes over it all, rehearses what he's, what he's shown them in Exodus and Leviticus, and then Moses dies, and then comes uh, the books of history. Joshua steps on the scene, and he says, or, or God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. And you know, folks, sometimes for us to move on, we have to let go of some things that God's done with. Joshua was loved Moses, looked up to him, couldn't imagine filling his shoes. God had to come to him and say, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, son, get on with it. And Joshua rose to the scene. Now, it details how Joshua, the successor of Moses, led the people of Israel into the promised land of Canaan. It records the military campaigns and the division of the land among the people. Then we come to the judges. Now, when I get into the judges... You know, you see the fall of man in Genesis, and you see immediate decline, not just in morality and ethics, but in age. And, I mean, they were living eight, nine hundred years before the flood. I mean, when you were 500, you were just starting to date. <laughs> Seriously, they lived a long time. But after the flood, the atmosphere changed, the climate changed. And the birth, uh, the, the uh, death rate just began to drop. The mortality rate began to drop. 
the, the age that you died just went from 800, 900 to 400, 300, 120. Moses reached 120 and on down until you got your three score and 10, 70. And if you went past 70, you're just blessed. You got some spare change. Okay? Judges just shows God's chosen people in the bottom of the pit. I mean, this is God's chosen people. They're supposed to be displaying God to the whole world, and all they do is backslide, 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 and they have to be delivered every single time by yet another judge, Samson, Gideon, we could name them, uh, Deborah. There were lots of judges in the, in the book of Judges, but they had to be delivered repeatedly, and then once they were delivered, as soon as the judge died, they went right back into the sin. Okay? That's the book of Judges. And uh, it's, 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 it's not an uplifting book, but it is very informative. Now, then there's a the book of Ruth, a bright spot. Story of Ruth, a woman of the Gentile nation of Moab who chose to serve the God of Israel. And she became the great-grandma of who? Yeah, David. Boaz and Ruth. And they produced Obed, who produced Jesse, who produced David. Then you got 1 Samuel. Now, this book centers on three persons. Samuel, who was the last of the judges of Israel. Saul, the first king of Israel, who they got against the will of God. You do remember that. God never intended for them to have a king. They were to be a theocracy. They were to be guided by prophets, by the spoken word and will of God. But here's what they did. They looked around them. And they said, we want to be like the other nations. They've all got kings. We want a king. Samuel said, that's not the will of God. They said, we don't care. We want a king. So he said, let me go to God about it. Went to God and God said, go ahead and give them one. They're stubborn. They're stiff-necked. Give them a king. And he gave them Saul. Sometimes you get what you want, but you don't want what you got. When you demand something from God. Okay? How many of you have ever done that? Come on. I want it. I want it now. I don't care what the will of God is. I've got to have it. He'll understand. He says, okay, finally God will say, okay, here you go. Here's your Saul. Here's your Ishmael. And Oh, you say, Lord, I should have listened to you. How many of you have some of those in your, I should have listened to you. How many have a file cabinet marked? I should have listened. I do. So they gave, they gave him Saul. God gave them Saul. And then David, who really shined as a king, who succeeded Saul, who I was writing about today. I'm writing a new book. Y'all pray for me. Now, 2 Samuel. The glorious 40-year reign of King David is recorded in this book. And they, Israel reached, in my opinion, its zenith in David, not in Solomon, but in David. David, when he was finished, at the end of his days, they had peace all around. Solomon enjoyed the peace that David had won. And except for his hard-to-comprehend sin with Bathsheba, but particularly what he did with her husband, hard to understand. I've read commentators, I mean old commentators, who say, David orchestrating the murder of Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband is one of those things in the Bible that no one has ever really been able to wrap their mind around. How could a man after God's own heart coldly order the execution of a man who refused to even go into his house when he was home on leave? He slept on the king's doorstep because he was so loyal to this man, and he was one of David's mighty men. Just shows you what Jeremiah said. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? You think you can't do something? Oh, you can. The flesh left to itself can do anything. I'm going to say that again. The flesh left to itself can do anything. That's why we need to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's why our nation is going completely insane because they've thrown the Word of God out. And, and said, God, we don't want you. 
We're secularizing by the moment. We've secularized our military, secularized our schools, secularized our government. We've secularized everything. And what has happened? Nature abhors a vacuum. If you create a vacuum, especially a spiritual vacuum, it's going to be filled with something. And now we're being filled with stark, raving madness. We're up is down and down is up and good is bad and bad is good. And somebody get me out of this loony bin. Okay, that was free too. That's not in the notes. But how many of you ever feel like you're in a, in a nut house? Yeah, I'm telling you. All right, so that's second. The glorious 40-year reign of King David is Second Samuel. Now then we come to the kings. First kings is King Solomon's reign and the kings of the divided kingdom through the reigns of Ahab in the north, Jehoshaphat in the south, are the subject of this book. Now just remember this. Solomon in his old age departed from God. He departed from God because he married women who carried him into idolatry. That's not an excuse. It's a reason. They carried him into idolatry. He went so far as to build the high places for these idolatrous practices, and he actually oversaw the sacrificing of children in the fire to Baal. How could the man who gave us Proverbs do that? I'm going to say it again. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And your flesh can do anything if it departs from the Word of God. So a divided king died and left a divided kingdom. Ten tribes went to the south, two to the north. Israel, north, Judah, south. I believe. Yeah. Some of this is ad lib, y'all. Now, 2 Kings, the final decline of Israel and Judah is recalled in this book. God's people fell into deep sin. Now you come to 1 Chronicles. The reign of David and preparations for building the temple are recorded here. The time of this book is the same as 2 Samuel. It's just from a different viewpoint. Now, 2 Chronicles, in this book... Uh, Israel's history has continued through Solomon's reign with focus on the southern kingdom, which was Israel. It closes with the decree of Cyrus, which permitted the return of the people from Babylon to Jerusalem. They had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 long years for their sins. The captivity that Jeremiah had warned them about through just constantly weeping eyes Yet they were carried off into Babylonian captivity as he stood and watched. People starving, children starving, carried off to a strange land where they said to Israel, sing to us a song. And they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And there they sat for 70 years. Then Cyrus released the decree which had been prophesied by Isaiah that Cyrus would release them. And they started sort of filtering back. It took a long time, but they started going back to repair the, the temple and repair the city walls and repair the city. Now, here's the sad thing about that. Most of them did not return. Now, the Jewish people were called to inhabit Jerusalem and the holy city. They were called to inhabit the promised land, but they had only been in captivity for, in Babylon for 70 years, and they decided they liked it more than the will of God. So only a smattering of those that remained in Babylon or those that were in Babylon returned to build the walls, build the temple, rebuild the city. The rest of them became the diaspora, the scattering, and they did not return. You have to be careful what you let yourself acclimate to because if you acclimate to flesh for too long, you will choose it over the will of God. Then there's Ezra. In the book of Ezra, the return of the Jews from Babylonian captivity is detailed, and Ezra was one of the leaders of that return. Then there's Nehemiah. Remember old Nehemiah? He was one tough guy. Nehemiah. Oh, he was tough. I mean, he whooped some guys that went out of the will of God. He just took them and beat them up. He was so upset one time, he pulled his own beard out. This guy was not tiptoeing through the tulips 
of Old Testament spirituality. He was tough. Anyway, he oversaw the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls under the direction of Nehemiah, uh, is recorded or recalled by this book. The project was begun about 14 years after Ezra's return with the people. So you see how it was taking a long time to rebuild after they had lost everything. Then we come to Esther. And in the book of Esther, God's deliverance of the Jews through Esther and Mordecai is the subject of this book. Satan in the book of Esther tried to completely wipe out the Jewish race. It was a, a, a totally attempted genocide. And only by the fasting and prayer of Esther and the intervention of God was Haman, who is the culprit, the criminal in this story, hanged on his own gallows, and the terrible plot was stopped. But that's the book of Esther. Now, we come to the books of poetry. Job. I love Job. This book is the story of Job, a man who lived around the time of Abraham. Probably the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. The theme is the question of why righteous men suffer. What a question. Do you know that that is one of the main reasons people decide to be atheist? So how do you know that? Because they told me when I was on Twitter with them. I'm serious. <laughs> that came up over and over again. Oh, if God's real, then why all the suffering and why do the righteous suffer? Why do good people have bad things happen to them? God can't be real. And the fact of the matter is, he is real. And I can't explain it. I, I, I did a funeral yesterday. It was very tough. Um, all I'll say is this. It was a wonderful man, 46 years old. And when I walked into the, the funeral home where the service was, I'm telling you, it was packed this way, this way into the overflow room, and out into the hallway, they were lined up and packed and leaning in. And one of the things I was asked to go into is, why did God allow this? This man, this dad, great dad, great husband. And I took advantage of the situation. I'm an opportunist when it comes to preaching the gospel. And I shared the gospel. And I said, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. I only know the Bible focuses on this. It's not when you die. It's are you ready when you die? That's the focus of the Bible. Okay? So the better question is, are you ready? Not why did a person die, but were they ready when their time came? The Bible says, always be ready. So Job, the theme is the question of why righteous men suffer. Then we come to the Psalms, one that all of us know, the prayer and the praise book of the Bible. It's the praise manual of God. Then Proverbs, which I love, divine wisdom for practical problems of everyday life, primarily written by a guy who totally went off the deep end in his latter days. But it's still the Word of God. Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's just hell under the sun. Vanity, vanity. The whole book of Ecclesiastes has a horizontal perspective. That is, life under the sun means life without God. That's why he says, what is anything worth? Nothing is worth anything. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no reward. There's no nothing. And that book is really depressing, except it's very informative. It's written by a king, Solomon, who was in his latter years and had departed from God. So he went from a vertical perspective where he was talking and praying to God all the time to a horizontal one where he had totally lost touch. And so vanity, vanity, and under the sun thinking is life without God. And if you have life without God, if your whole perspective is this way, horizontal, you are going to be in hell. Because you've got to be able to go to Him. You've got to have that vertical access. You have got to have the ability to go to God and say, I don't understand. What am I going to do? And the peace that passes all understanding guards your heart and mind through Jesus Christ. What a blessing to be able to go up and not just this way. 
But Ecclesiastes, the guy is just stuck this way. But it's a great book, and I love it. I'm going to teach it sometime. Song of Solomon, we just did that one, The Romance of the Shulamite Bride and the Shepherd. The story represents God's love for Israel and Christ for his church. Then we come to the books of prophecy. Now, several of these books were written during a period when the nation of Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Israel, ten of the tribes, Judah, two of them. Isaiah, what a magnificent. You know, we're told that he was sawn in half inside of a tree. He was martyred. This incredible, compelling, profound prophet was put into the trunk of a tree and sawn in half. That's who he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 12 in the hall of faith. Isaiah warned of coming judgment against Judah because of their sin against God, and he preceded Jeremiah. Jeremiah was written during the later decline and fall of Judah. He told of the coming judgment and urged surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, you better surrender or you're going to die. Nobody wanted to surrender, and all the false prophets were saying, do not listen to this guy. And Jeremiah was thrown in prison. He was put in the stocks. He was thrown out into a slimy pit and left to die. It's funny, but in this world, truth is not real popular. Then we come to Lamentations. Jeremiah's lament. Oh, if you want to read something. He is describing in Lamentations what he saw after a lifetime of prophesying to Judah You're going to be taken captive. You're going to lose everything. You're going to be taken away. If you don't turn, if you don't repent, and they did not listen to him, like I just said, they abused him, persecuted him, mocked him, ridiculed him, tore up his writings where he had to write it again. But he got to watch, not that he wanted to, as the Babylonians swept in, carried the whole city off in chains and shackles and leg ankles, or ankle uh, chains and the whole bit, carried them clanking and clinging and dragging down the street. He looked, Lamentations is written through a veil of tears as he sees what happened to God's people. Ezekiel, what a prophet. He warns first of Jerusalem's impending fall, and then he foretells its future restoration. Then we come to Daniel. The prophet Daniel was captured during the early siege of Judah and taken to Babylon. He was one of the Babylonian captives along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book provides historic and prophetic teaching which is important in understanding Bible prophecy today. What a profound book it is. Now Hosea. It's hard to understand these prophets. God told Ezekiel, well, I'm not even going to go into it. It's kind of gross. I'll do it if I ever teach Ezekiel. Because it is gross. What do you got to do? Anyway, walk around in his underwear and all this. It was weird. But now, Hosea. I'm serious. I'm just, it's the truth. Now, Hosea, God said, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Now, guys, this goes to show you the old has passed away and all has become new. Okay? The theme of this book is Israel's unfaithfulness, and God told Hosea to marry a prostitute so he could teach not just him but Israel what God felt like because God felt like his people had prostituted themselves away from him. And then uh, their punishment and restoration by God, Israel's unfaithfulness and punishment and restoration. Then we come to Joel. Joel tells of the plagues which foreshadowed future judgment. We would call what Joel gave them the warning signs before judgment fell. Now, church, hear me tonight. I believe that God sends warning signs before judgment falls. And I've studied judgment in the last five years. I've just been really into it. Now, I haven't preached on it much, but it's it's been my private devotional stuff. And I'm convinced that God is sending As God sent plagues and different things that foreshadowed the judgment of God's people if they did not repent, God has done that with us and is doing that with us. And America is experiencing judgments as I stand here. Economic, moral, political. 
I'm going to go so far as to tell you this. Unless America repents, God cannot bless America. He can't. And I think if there was ever a time the church needed to be between the porch and the altar, seeking God and crying out for God to send mercy, it's now. Okay? I know that's heavy, but it's the truth. Now, Amos, during a period of material prosperity, everything looked great, but moral decay, Amos warned Israel and surrounding nations of God's future judgment on their sin. So having money doesn't mean you're right with God. Obadiah. The book of Obadiah, God's judgment is uh, against Edom, an evil nation located south of the Dead Sea. In a nutshell, here's what Edom did. As Israel was being carried away captive, the Edomites mocked them, ridiculed them, and plundered their goods. And God remembered it. And the Edomites, you can't find one today. They're gone. Because God judged them for the way they treated his people when they were down. Okay? Now, Jonah. Remember Jonah, the big fish? Jesus talked about that. There's no fish that swallowed a man. It said God prepared the fish. This was a fish custom designed to swallow Jonah. The story of the prophet Jonah who preached repentance in Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire. The book reveals God's love and plan of repentance for the Gentiles. When the fish finally spit him back up on the shore after three days and nights in the belly of a whale, oh gosh, I think the reason, I think the reason Nineveh repented is what they saw when they looked at him. He, he, he was bleached white. His skin was no doubt burned from stomach acid. He had a look in his eye that said... You don't want to fall into the hands of the living God. <laughs> I repent. The whole city repented. And he, all he preached was one sentence. Man, I wish preaching was that easy. But just so you'll know, about 150 years later, they came under judgment anyway because they went back into their sin. Micah, another prophecy against Israel's sin foretells the birthplace of Jesus 700 years before the event happened. Isn't that amazing? But thou, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth, who is to be ruler over Israel, whose goings have been of old, even from everlasting. Micah predicted that an eternal personality would invade earth via Bethlehem. 700 years later, seven centuries later, Jesus came. Nahum tells of the impending destruction of Nineveh, which had been spared. Yeah, I didn't even know I put that down, but there we go. 150 years earlier through Jonah's preaching. So Nahum was there when, and warning them again 150 years after they had turned in the time of Jonah. Habakkuk or uh, Habakkuk. Doesn't really matter. Depends on where you're from. I'm from Texas, Habakkuk, <laughs> reveals God's plan to punish a sinful nation by an even more sinful nation. It teaches that just shall live by faith. It ate Habakkuk alive when he understood that God was going to judge his own people by a nation more wicked than his own people. He said, how can you do that? How can you use a, a nation more wicked than your people if you're judging them for what they did how can you raise up a nation that's even worse than them and use them to be the chastening rod? And God said to him, essentially, hang tough. You're going to understand. In the meantime, the just shall live by faith. When you don't understand God's hand, trust God's heart. Zephaniah, judgment and restoration of, of Judah is what it's about. Haggai urges the Jews to rebuild the temple after a 15-year delay due to enemy resistance. Zechariah, one of my favorites, further urging to complete the temple and renew spiritual commitment. And it foretells Christ's first and second comings. And by the way, Zechariah perfectly describes a nuclear blast. He says, 
I saw men standing on their feet, and their eyes burned out of their head, and their tongue out of their mouth while they stood there before they hit the ground. And he said it would happen in the last days. Malachi, last Old Testament prophet, warns against spiritual shallowness and foretells the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus and said that it was time for the fathers to be restored to the sons and the sons to the fathers. Now we come to the New Testament. Let's move quickly. Everybody being blessed? I'm just trying to give you a little bit about each one. The Gospels. Here's the four books known as the Gospels record the birth, life, ministry, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the approach of each book differs. This is really cool. Matthew emphasizes Christ as king and was directed especially to the Jews. Mark emphasizes Christ as the servant of God and was directed at the Romans. Luke presents Christ as the son of man, the perfect man and savior of imperfect men. And John presents Jesus as the son of God. Each gospel has a different emphasis. History, quickly, you know the book of Acts, the one history book of the New Testament records the early growth of Christianity from the time of Christ's return to heaven through Paul's imprisonment in Rome in Acts 28. The book covers about 33 years, and it emphasizes the work of the Holy It could almost be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I believe there's an Acts 29 that's happening right now. Acts 28 is the end of that history, but the Holy Spirit hadn't quit moving. Amen? Now you come to the letters. Romans, I'm going to say it. I want you to say it with me. The greatest book ever written. In my opinion, and I'm not alone, I believe Romans is the greatest book ever written. It is totally, magnificently profound. <sighs> I wish I could go into it more. That's Romans. First Corinthians, written to correct errors of Christian conduct in the local church. Second Corinthians speaks of the true ministry of the gospel, stewardship, and Paul's apostolic authority. Galatians deals with the error of mixing law and faith. And the theme of Galatians is what, everybody? Justification by faith alone. Ephesians encourages believers regarding their position in Christ. You are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Philippians emphasize the joy of Christian unity. It's the joy book. Then Colossians deals with the error of Gnosticism, uh, false teachings which denied Jesus was truly Son of God and Son of Man. Uh, it's also emphasized the obsession of Jesus on the behalf of believers who were once slaves to sin and runaways. Amen? Hebrews, the superiority of Christianity over Judaism is the theme. Timothy 3.16. Titus, Paul's letter to a young minister named Titus who was serving God on the island of Crete. Doctrine and a godly life are stressed. Then we come to Philemon, Paul's intercession for a runaway slave of a wealthy Colossian Christian. Illustrates the intercession of Jesus on the behalf of believers who were once slaves to sin and runaways. Amen? Hebrews, the superiority of Christianity over Judaism is the theme. Presents Jesus as the great... Paul's letter to a young minister named Titus who was serving God on the island of Crete. Doctrine and a godly life are stressed. Then we come to Philemon, Paul's intercession for a runaway slave of a wealthy Colossian Christian. Illustrates the intercession of Jesus on the behalf of believers who were once slaves to sin and runaways. Amen? Hebrews, the superiority of Christianity over Judaism is the theme. Presents Jesus as the great high priest and the mediator between God and man. Then we come to James teaches that true faith is evidenced by what? You show me, you say you've got faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Although salvation is by faith alone, works prove you are saved. First Peter, a letter of comfort and encouragement to believers, especially those suffering spiritual attacks from outside the church through unbelievers. We're going to need that one more and more. Second Peter, a warning against spiritual attacks from within. False teachers who had already crept into the church were on Peter's mind. First John, written to combat Gnosticism, just like Colossians. 
which denied Christ's position as Son of God and Son of Man. The book emphasizes fellowship and love among believers and assures true believers of eternal life. Everybody say, I'm saved. saved. And it's going to stay that way. All right, second John. Saving faith is persevering faith. And as I say, faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty at the first. Some of you are running that through your brain right now. Second John warns against any compromise with doctrinal error and emphasizes the truth must be guarded in love. Third John warns of the sin of refusing fellowship with those who are true believers. No matter what they look like or how they're dressed, we don't care if they've got purple hair, pink hair, blue hair. We don't care what they look like or what they're involved in. They can come in here. We don't require you to be in a suit or a dress. Matter of fact, my good friend, Mike Maiden, at his church in Phoenix, he's got some rough people there. And he's brought on a lot of ushers and a lot of parking lot attendants. And the people were complaining about how when they would drive up, some of them would be smoking. Mike stood up and said, hey, quit judging them. Where they are in grace is not where you are in grace. God is just beginning to touch them. They won't be smoking the rest of their life. You don't clean a fish before you catch it. Now... And then we come to, if it'll, well, take me, Judy. There we go. Jude, another warning against apostasy and false doctrine. The theme is similar to that of Second Peter. And then finally, the book of prophecy, Revelation. What a book. This prophetic book tells of the final events of world history. It tells of the things which were, are, and which will be in the future plan of God. We're going to stop right there. I had a little bit more, but time is up. How many of you are glad we went through just that little summary? All right. Let's stand up together, can we? What a book. Can you say with me, what a book? And from Genesis to Revelation, it's unified. Thank you, Lord, for your blessing. Thank you for this amazing word of God you've given to us. And we pray, Lord, tonight. Help us to know it and know it well like Jesus knew it, like the apostles knew it. Just to read it and familiarize ourselves with it and understand what it's about. Thank you that you're going to bless us next time as we look at why there's different versions of the Bible and what they mean and which are the best. Lord, thank you for teaching us. Can you lift your hands with me? And let's just sing one stanza.